Thank you, <clears throat> Pastor Ernest. It's uh, just a delight to be here with you this morning here at, uh, in Auburn. Lots of connections with Emmanuel, as uh, you've heard. Uh, Pastor Ernest has served on our board for a number of years, and uh, really appreciate his wisdom and his uh, diligence as a board member, giving oversight with a number of others to the ministry that is Emmanuel. And if you didn't know, Emmanuel started almost 80 years ago. Next year will be our 80th anniversary. Started out of what is today the Evangelical Missionary Church of Canada as a place to serve, to train and raise up a new generation of leaders. And we still continue to do that. And it's always great to see evidence of the work of Emmanuel. Thinking of Rob here working in ministry here at this church. And also Jason who's here today. You've heard from him. He's one of our graduates. So it's just a delight to be here. For these past 80 years, Emmanuel has faithfully served in the training of men and women for Christian service, both within the church and in church-related ministries, but also in the wider marketplace. Pastor Ernest referenced my own daughter, who came to Emmanuel, graduated this past spring, uh, having done two years of study. It was really a one-year program, but she stretched it out over two years, and uh, graduated with a, a certificate children's ministry, which really ties in with her early childhood education uh, training that she already had. These are exciting days to be part of Christian higher education. They're scary in some ways because the trend across the country has been for many of our institutions of uh, ministry training to experience a downturn in enrollment. And that always leads to other problems, other challenges and concerns, uh, particularly around finance. But as God continues to work amongst his people, there are lots of evidences of fresh ideas, fresh thinking, <coughs> collaborations, new partnerships, new ways of doing things. And that has been the case for us at Emmanuel over these last number of years as we have taken time to, to think through, does God really have a place for a place like Emmanuel? And the answer that we discovered and have been affirmed in so many ways is yes. We believe there's still a place for a ministry training center like Emmanuel Bible College. But God is encouraging us to be creative and responsive and collaborative in these days as we move forward. So lots of exciting things happening, including the launch last year of our Open Learning Division. It's really about increasing access to training opportunities, both at credit level and non-credit level. And that's included a partnership with another denominational partner, to produce a number of online courses at the non-credit level. It's also led us to being able to offer and repackage training in different ways. So if you keep up to date with the college on our website or through our social media, you'll get lots of uh, evidence of the things that are happening. So I would encourage you to do that. And I want to say to you as a congregation, thank you for your ongoing support of the ministry at Emmanuel, your financial contribution is so muchly appreciated. And I want to say thank you from all of us at Emmanuel for that gift that comes each year. It's not to be taken for granted, and we do appreciate your partnership in the ministry of training men and women for God's service both inside and outside the church. I'm happy to talk to you later if you want to ask anything more about Emmanuel, but we do want to focus our attention on the scriptures this morning. So that was a long passage that Rob led, read for us together. But it's one that I hope will be of encouragement to us 
as we think about this topic of spiritual freedom. Well, uh, Ernest told you that I was born in Glasgow, Scotland, and uh, one of our Scottish heroes, of course, is William Wallace. And on the 23rd of August, 1305, I think too many of you were around at that point, uh, he was executed in London. He was executed for crimes of high treason. And in the movie Braveheart, one of those great movies, you know, we have to you know, put aside the historical accuracy of some of the scenes in that movie, but nevertheless at the end, as Wallace is executed, he wants to try to uh, say something to his executioner, and he, with all the strength he has, just as he's nearing death, he shouts out that word, freedom. And of course, around the world, many long for and fight for and campaign for various kinds of freedom. And the remembrance that we give at this time of the year is in relation to our own freedom. But we're not going to talk about that kind of freedom this morning. We are going to talk about spiritual freedom. The context of the passage we read together is conversation that Jesus has, or an interaction that Jesus has with some of the people in the temple. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, there are many interactions recorded in the scriptures of Jesus interacting with those around him. Verse 30, the one before we started reading, tells us that even as Jesus spoke, many believed in him. So the teaching of Jesus is having an impact. There are those Jews who listen to him, who hear him, who begin to believe. But then Jesus says to them, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what follows as we read together is a fairly long passage and a fairly complex one and includes lots of arguments about the themes of spiritual freedom, of ancestry, and ultimately of the identity of Jesus himself. And there are those who are in the group, or in the crowd, who begin to believe in Jesus. They're seeing something in his person. They're seeing something in his teaching that draw them to him. But there are also others who are unwilling to accept the teaching of Jesus. There are those who want to oppose him. And ultimately, as you get to the end of the passage, there are those who want to kill him. As we try to make sense of the passage before us, I want to identify four characteristics of those who find themselves in spiritual bondage. Of course, the opposite is what we're interested in, spiritual freedom. But the passage reminds us of those who are, first of all, in bondage. As we think about their bondage, we will be reminded of what it really means to be spiritually free. The first characteristic is this, is that those to whom Jesus is speaking don't even understand or realize they have a problem. They answer Jesus in verse 33, they say, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we will be set free? And here are the Jews who are arguing that they are not slaves. They do not need to be set free. They do not need to be freed. 
Their core argument that they present back to Jesus is that they are descendants of Abraham. They have never been slaves of anyone. Well, if you know your Old Testament history, you'll know that the people of Israel have been slaves at different times in their history. They've been slaves to Egypt. There's a great theme in the Old Testament of remembering their condition in Egypt and how God, through Moses, led them through the wilderness to the Promised Land. They've been slaves to Babylon and Persia and now even to Rome itself. They aren't thinking really of the human level because their history is filled with, with times when they have been enslaved by other nations. They are descendants of Abraham. They know the truth. God has made his, has revealed himself and he has given them the law. They are heirs of the covenant promise of God. How could they be in bondage? How could they need to be set free? What Jesus says is a preposterous statement to them. So they're in a place where they don't really see that they have anything to change. There is no issue. There is no problem. They are in spiritual bondage. But even if they need, needed to do something, what Jesus identifies as he moves through is that they are putting their trust in the wrong places. Even if they don't really understand that they need to be set free, they are putting their trust in the wrong places. They are putting their trust in their ancestry. We are Abram's descendants, they say. We have never been slaves of anyone. And the passage as you read through is filled with lots of references to the claims of the Jews that Abraham is their father. And they believe that they are the chosen people of God. And because of their ancestry, because of the choice of God to work through Abraham and his descendants, because of God's great promises to Abraham, that God would build a nation from his descendants. These Jews in the time of Jesus believe that they have a special place in the heart of God. But not only a special place in God's heart, it means that they have a special privilege, that they are protected by God. Their claim to blood heritage brings for them spiritual privileges. And Jesus is trying to crack that one open and say that is not necessarily true. They are indeed in bondage. And the reason that they need to be set free is that their true spiritual father is not Abraham as they claim. But Jesus puts the nail on, that gets the nail on the head to, to identify that their true spiritual father is indeed the devil. Jesus doesn't dispute their human ancestry, but he does dispute their claim that somehow their, their ancestry might give them special privilege before God, and that therefore they are off the hook. They're putting their trust in their family tree instead of on a real, ongoing, spiritual relationship with God. And what Jesus does here is he pushes past their ancestry to point his finger to true, deeper spiritual realities. And even if their claims were somehow validated, Jesus notes that their conduct does not match their claims to be true descendants of Abraham. And indeed, you get the sense that if this was true, instead of opposing Jesus, 
these people who listened to him would welcome him and his teaching instead of trying to dispute it and reject it. So these individuals that Jesus is interacting with don't know they have a problem, they're putting their trust in the wrong place, and thirdly, they even refuse to acknowledge the true identity of Jesus. As you read through the Gospels, particularly this Gospel, the Gospel of John, one of the underlying themes is that of the contrast between those who begin to understand who Jesus really is and those who don't. And here in this passage, instead of welcoming and accepting Jesus, we find out a group of people who ultimately want to stand against him and kill him. Jesus says in verse 40, as it is, you're looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your father. You belong to your father, the devil. You see what Jesus does here. He points them in a different direction. Rather than their claiming their true ancestry comes from Abraham, Jesus says, you are really ancestors, you are really descendants of your true father who is the devil. You want to carry out his desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. And with this accusation, it just causes the folks that Jesus is interacting with to get angry. And we read that they pick up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself and slips away from their presence. And here Jesus puts his finger on the fundamental spiritual reality of these descendants of Abraham. Truly in their lives they are not following after God, they are not seeking after the things of God, but their lives are controlled and captivated by their true spiritual father, that is the devil. Instead of accepting the truth that comes from Jesus, they reject that. They are bound by lies, they are in bondage to the father of lies. The passage ends with the claims from Jesus that he existed even before Abraham. It ends with a claim that to those who heard it, Jesus is claiming eternal existence and divinity. And so this again causes great consternation in his hearers. They, they, they struggle to understand how Jesus could know Abraham and that how he could even exist before Abraham was born. Which brings us to the fourth characteristic of those who are in spiritual bondage, that they, they refuse to accept the claims and the teachings of Jesus. In John chapter 1 verse 14, you read a description of Jesus as being full of grace and truth. And 23 times in the Gospel of John, the word truth is used. Jesus makes the claim himself that I am the way the truth and the life. John chapter 14, verse 6. But here, instead of accepting his teaching, instead of accepting his claims, those who hear him accuse him of being a Samaritan. They accuse him of being possessed by, the, by a demon. And they throw slurs and rejections on Jesus and his claims. They throw insults at him. They attack the very person of Jesus. They call him names. They do the kinds of things that our kids do in the school playground when they 
fall out of favor with somebody else. John chapter 1 verse 12 reminds us that yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But the right to become children of God, true spiritual heirs, only comes to those who receive his teaching, who receive his claim, who believe in his name. And it's interesting to go back to verse 31, to those Jews who had believed in him. There are those among the crowd who are captivated by the teaching of Jesus, but by the end of the chapter, that acceptance has turned to rejection. And they did not believe, or their belief was not fully formed, or it was, was not in alignment with the claims and teaching of Jesus. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 reminds us that if we declare with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. And here are those who are not willing to declare that Jesus is Lord rather than accepting him, they reject him. And Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. And that truth, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If we are to know true spiritual freedom, it means that we have to come to that place where we accept who Jesus is, begin to believe in his teachings, and in the claims of his identity. So as we bring this to a close this morning, let me give you two very simple takeaways that you might take into the week that lies ahead as we think about what it means to be spiritually free. And both are concerning the person and the claims and the teachings of Jesus. The first is this, that I encourage you to find out as much as you can about who Jesus is. If we are going to be spiritually free, if we are going to know the experience that freedom brings us, then we have to know the one who brings that freedom. And the one is Jesus. We have in our Bibles the story of God's interaction with human beings, all the way from the, the creation through to the end of time. And everything in the scriptures points us to Jesus, the promise of God who comes into the world in human form. We're about to come to Christmas. And we retell that story of the incarnation of God taking on human flesh, coming among us. But the scriptures points us to Jesus. We can read in the Gospels the story of Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his teachings, the interactions with various individuals in various places, some religious people, some non-religious people, some whose lives were uh, far away from, from God others who are closer. So I encourage you to keep reading the stories of Jesus. Find out about Jesus. Read good books that help introduce you to the person and life and teaching of Jesus. One of the hashtags that uh, I see used by colleagues is following Jesus together. But if we are to follow Jesus, we need to know about him. And so a lot of our activity, a lot of our thinking can be directed at learning about who Jesus is. 
And you know, there's a, there's a, there continues to be, I think, in our culture, a fascination with the person of Jesus. And knowing about him means it gives us an opportunity to share him with others. And as times like Christmas come around, maybe Jesus gets uh, pushed out in many ways, but there's still a fascination with the fundamental story about Jesus, his person, his life, and ultimately his teaching. Which brings us to the second takeaway to, for me to encourage you not only to learn as much as you can about Jesus, but to learn on, to learn and hold on to the teachings of Jesus. It's one thing to know about him. It's another thing to know what he taught. And we find the teachings of Jesus, of course, in the Gospels. The New Testament books of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, we see those teachings expounded through the letters of the Apostles as communities of believers have come into being in various parts of the Roman Empire. Those who are with Jesus in his life, his apostles, his disciples, have opportunity to share and, and, and uh, instruct those who come to follow Jesus. Sometimes I think in our, in our church lives we put our emphasis on other things and we get away from the person and the teachings of Jesus. But we need to be Jesus-centric in everything we do. We need to be Jesus-centric in our studying and in our preaching, and in our teaching. And we need to find opportunity to remind us, to draw us back to the person and to the teachings of Jesus. Jesus gives us uh, opportunity to do that. He says to his disciples as they share the Last Supper, do this in remembrance of me. And the teaching of the apostles is, let's continue to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and his teaching. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. May we be people of the truth. May we be people who follow after Jesus and reflect him in everything we do. To God be the glory. Amen.